Welcome to the Limitation Is Rise podcast. On this episode, I have another superhuman guest in Dr. Andrea Pennington. She is a author, a trauma coach. Uh, orgasm prescription for women is something that is in her Instagram bio that I was interested in because I think it will help a lot of people. And you just work with a lot of people and helping them with self-love, self-improvement and being the best version of themselves, I think is the easiest way of describing it. But could you give a little introduction as to who you are for everyone that hasn't come across you yet? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on. Welcome. So much gratitude. So I am an American. I'm a, an integrative physician, an acupuncturist and meditation teacher. I live in the south of France. And I also run a publishing company helping people get their books and messages to the world through TED Talks and films and, and so on. And yes, I have published uh, a few best-selling books. One is The Orgasm Prescription for Women. And my other one most recently is The Top 10 Traits of Highly Resilient People and The Real mm -hmm. Self-Love Handbook. So self-love and living as the hero of your life, these are the main themes of my work, helping people recover from trauma and heal from adverse childhood experiences is part of what my professional work has included, whether that's through group practices, one-on-one -on -one therapy, um, retreats, including psychedelic assisted therapy, magic mushrooms, ayahuasca retreats, or soon in the United States, MDMA and psilocybin when they become FDA cleared and ketamine. So. It's a whole range of things. <laughs> There's so, so many things to delve into that I'm quite interested in, but I'll go with the first thing. So you're, you're talking about helping people overcome their trauma. Do you find that people struggle to believe that that's something they can overcome or to live with their trauma? Absolutely. Uh, it, it baffles many people. They feel stuck in either victim mode or just that they can't get beyond some of the horrendous things that they've experienced. And my career actually started off with treating trauma. When I first finished medical school and, and got training in acupuncture, it was for drug and alcohol detox. And then when I opened my medical center, it, we were treating people with binge eating disorder. Mm -hmm. And for, for many people with substance use disorder or eating disorders, at the core, there's often trauma in the background. And so, I saw all the, these people like struggling with these compulsive behaviors and feeling like even though their rational mind said, of course, I don't want the drugs, I don't want the food to be the reason that I go to an early grave, the conscious mind wasn't enough to get past the blocks. And so we had to go into healing the trauma. And that's what's led me on creating all of these holistic models for helping people heal. It's amazing that you brought in the holistic side as well, because you meet a lot of people that try to deal with trauma, like at the surface level. And it's why I, I in my career, I've discovered so many people with substance abuse, because that's an easier problem to focus on. Well, drink, I, I drink too much. So I'll, once I fix the drinking, then I'll look at uh, what's going on here. Um, even as some, when I did the hypnotherapy, I remember someone coming in for smoking. And we spoke for about five minutes and I was like, smoking is not your problem here. Like there's a lot more going on. So say, say if I was watching this now and I'm thinking about all the things that you do, because there's such a wide variety, where would I start my self-love, self-healing journey? 
Well, for most people, they don't walk around knowing that they don't love themselves. Like, yeah, I was on this journey. I didn't know until my early 30s that I had this low level of self-loathing that was driving all of my compulsive behaviors. Mm -hmm. So I found that my patients and I had a lot in common. A lot of my patients would get better and go on and live healthy lives. We had this holistic treatment model. It was great. There was a small subset of patients who would sabotage their their recovery Mm -hmm. or they'd switch addictions. And when I unraveled that at the core, they didn't believe they were worthy of happiness or health. They didn't believe they deserved to be successful and that they didn't yeah. love themselves. And that resonated with me on a deep level, because even though I didn't have substance use, I had other compulsive behaviors. So that's kind of where people start. They kind of look at what are the behaviors or the emotional reactions that I really want to fix. So for me, part of that was perfectionism. I had a compulsive need to prove myself. I was always looking for validation and approval. I was very perfectionistic. And that drove me nearly to the point of burnout. And even though I had achieved so much and had a big successful career with all the money and the fame, I was still feeling like I wasn't good enough. So dealing with imposter syndrome is another way that many people will come into my universe and say, how do I get, get past that? So it could be compulsive behaviors, addictions. It could be the perfectionism, people-pleasing, codependency. These are the kinds of things that bring people into my world. What, what do you think it was that you have in you that made you realize that you weren't just being empathetic? Because I've worked with a lot of coaches and they think they're being empathetic. I'm really empathetic. I really feel what's going on. And you're like, well, that's because you have all this unresolved stuff yourself. So what was it do you think that clicked with you or was there a moment of clarity where you're like, wait a minute, what they're saying, that's what I feel or that's what I'm saying. And how did you then overcome that to get to where you are now? I think it was in my early thirties. So about 20 years ago, when I really started on my own self-love journey, I heard other people use this term empath. Like Hmm. you can feel the energy and emotion of other people, even if they're not even in the same room. And I was like, oh my God, there are other people that have that. Some people call it being a highly sensitive person. And it is true that many people who grow up in trauma or in dysfunctional families, we have had to become hypervigilant and very Hmm. sensitive to protect ourselves, to detect if a family member was going to be abusive that day, or if it was Mm -hmm. even safe. Um, For me, I I realized that it was leading me down oftentimes to depression and taking on emotion that wasn't even mine as I started to learn about trauma and how I had been impacted. So that was kind of the light bulb moment for me about 20 years ago to, to really start unraveling all of the family influence and all of the things that, I'll be honest, there are many experiences in my childhood that were normalized yeah that that today if i told you i did some of the things if i did these things to my child you would call that <laughs> abuse you would be calling yeah. protective services like okay. yeah I, I remember growing up and like talking to people about how often i would spend time in a pub and they'd be like what do you mean you're like no and you just go down you, your dad takes you to the pub and you sit there for a couple hours in the pub and they're like no that's not normal. Yeah, you're like, oh, is it not? Let's look at this. <laughs> um, so something I suppose that came up for me when I was unraveling my life 
how do you get over the feeling that it's not your problem to open up? So say, for example, my dad drank, but then that was his problem. And I, I would like compartmentalize what I was feeling instead of that. So how do you, how do you bring it up and, and unlock it for yourself without that guilt of I'm going to bring this up for them as well? Mm. Well, for me, I really see each of us are on a heroic journey of the soul. And it's nice if we have other people with us because we heal in community, but ultimately it requires this honesty on a soul level. Mm -hmm. So for me, in my book, The Real Self-Love Handbook, there's a five-step cornerstone process. And the first step is awareness. We have to bring awareness to how we were programmed and our initial programming starts from our parents. We get yeah. socialized in our family of origin. And so it, it's a necessary step. It, and that's where all of my client work uh, and my group work begins. It begins with looking at how did you get programmed? What were the experiences and circumstances and environments that you grew up in? And we don't do this to put blame on anyone or shame on anyone. Yeah. We do uncover quite often that there were incredibly painful things that happened, but we're doing this to bring the awareness because you can't heal what you don't acknowledge. We can't heal what remains hidden. And that was what the, the case was in my life. I had gotten to a point where I was super successful. I had you know, passed the $2 million mark in my business and I was miserable and I was feeling like an imposter and I was heading toward burnout. And mm -hmm. it's because I was not aware of what the underlying programs were that were driving my behaviors. And so if you're not aware of it, of course, you're going to try everything on the outside to fix. Maybe I need a new program. Maybe I need a new, a new coach or a new mentor or a new this or, an, you know, an external fix. Mm -hmm. And we have to get into the subconscious mind and who we say we are being in the world. I love the idea of, of thinking about the programming. Like the self-awareness is everywhere. Like in everything that I've done, it's all like right down from martial arts to coaching. Your self-awareness, without it, you're not getting anywhere. And like I would teach meditation and Qigong and martial arts to people that are not self-aware. So they think they're amazing. And you're like, if we could just video you and you watch that back. <laughs> and the same thing happens. And like you said, they go clutching for, oh, that didn't work for me. Like whenever I was doing uh, my Reiki, I was doing Reiki stuff and people would come, would talk to me about it. And then they'd say, no, I did. That doesn't work. Like mm -hmm. it didn't work for you at that time in that moment. Cause you weren't ready. Like it's the same as anything. So building that self-awareness and, and teaching people that there's programs that you're programmed. And if you can be programmed, you can be unprogrammed and exactly. then reprogrammed again. Um, so how did then, this is my own curiosity, but how did the psychedelic work come into it? Like did that, did you go on a wee journey of discovery yourself or how did that come about to be part of your pra practice? Yeah, I, I did not set out to become a facilitator of psychedelic assisted therapy. I never thought <laughs> people would ever know that I did this stuff. Um, my first experience with MDMA was right when I was about to turn 30 and it was almost in like a couples therapy situation. And I, it just opened my heart and allowed me to experience and express love in a whole new way. And the first time I tried MDMA, I was already a doctor and I was like, 
what is in this stuff? Because I had never felt so much love, love for the universe, love for myself. And I started studying it, you know, looking at all the research and finding out that people had been using MDMA in psychotherapy for years mm-hmm. in Europe and in the United States before it be, became banned and, and classified as a Schedule One substance in the US. And it wasn't actually until 2008, so eight years after my first MDMA experience, I was in a trance dance workshop and mm-hmm. our shaman talked about ayahuasca and how he was leading retreats in the jungles of Hawaii. And I thought like, really what this psychedelic, like I was so curious, but then when he told me that you had to dig your own pit to like puke and shit into, I was like, oh, <laughs> in the jungle, like, no. And it wasn't until, you know, nine years later, I was in Peru and I heard the call again. And I had the opportunity to sit in ceremony with a beautiful ayahuasquera. And she led us in a sacred ceremony with ayahuasca in a, in a very safe yoga retreat, still <laughs> surrounded by nature. Yeah. And that was the first time that I really experienced a deep look at my programming, but without the emotional attachment. So with, with psychedelics, you're in an expanded state of consciousness. And quite often you will see images or vignettes. And I saw these scenes from my childhood and I connected with the soul of my mother. And I just had so much healing and awakening in that first journey. And then a couple of years later, I had another opportunity to sit in ceremony with ayahuasca and my first magic mushroom or psilocybin mushroom journey with another beautiful medicine woman in Iceland. And each of these experiences was like opening up my heart and my mind and seeing in some instances for the very first time, how I got so screwed up. Like, so let me give you an example. I grew up in a family where my parents divorced when I was three years old. And there's certain wounds that I know I had because my parents divorced and then my mom moved us to Colorado and my father stayed in Nevada. We didn't have Skype. We didn't have FaceTime. Mm. So all I had was the phone. I only saw him when I had school breaks. It wasn't like the co-parenting that a lot of people are aware of today. Yeah. And so I knew that there was this this inner child wounding. I knew I had, you know, daddy issues. I knew that when I got into romantic relationships, there was always this sense of either making them prove their love to me or just not feeling worthy of that love. Like once it came, it was like, oh my God, what do I do with all this love? Yeah. And so I, I knew that that was an influence. But when I sat in some of these sacred ceremonies with ayahuasca and magic mushrooms, I saw a lot more of the programming that happened when my parents were still married. So I didn't have verbal recognition, but in these ceremonies, I could see some of the toxic energy between my parents and how it impacted me as a child, how it impacted my mindset, like all sorts of limiting beliefs about who I was and how unworthy I was. And and so for me, it's been an incredible healing journey to sit in these ceremonies But it really wasn't until, I guess, maybe the last two years that I realized I needed to share this with other people. And in particular, for Black, Brown, Indigenous, and other people of color. Because one of the things that was very clear to me, I had dealt with depression and suicidal ideation 
many times in my life and going into therapy didn't do much for me. Getting mm -hmm. on antidepressants didn't do much for me. But when I finally was able to sit with a black psychiatrist and that shaman I mentioned was a black shaman, something shifted. Being able to sit with someone who has the cultural humility and the awareness shifted so many things for me that when I came out of my most poignant five gram mushroom journey, I recognized like, oh my God, how many other people are living like I was living, unaware of how much of the trauma was impacting us as an adult, despite being functional. How many other black, brown, or people of color are going and sitting in, in sessions with white therapists and not really getting to the key issue? Hmm. How many other black, brown, or people of color are not going to seek out psychedelic substances because there's this stigma, there's a fear around illegal substances. There's a, a belief that this is like hippie shit. This is white people shit. <laughs> and so I realized that I've been treating trauma for 22 years as a physician. And I realized I needed to be able to add at least the component to help people prepare for and integrate their psychedelic experiences if they want to go the clinical route as opposed to going with a sacred shaman. If they want to go the clinical route, Ketamine is legal in the United States. Here in Europe, we can do psilocybin like truffles. Um, we can also do ketamine. And I have other shamans. I'm not becoming a shaman, but I have other people that I work with who do um, sit with ayahuasca. So that's, that's kind of like the weird journey that it took for me to get to where I am today. And now I'm able to, to host events around the world and support people. And I should also say, you don't have to do psychedelics. You already know this, I'm sure, Liam, but holotropic breathwork, which was developed by Stanislav and Christina Groff, yeah. it is a powerful way to get into expanded states of consciousness where we can have access to these same psychedelic realms and deep, deep inner child healing work and even perinatal healing work. And I just recognize that after 22 years of treating trauma, there haven't been really groundbreaking treatments available like what I'm seeing with psychedelics. It's certainly not for everyone. There are medical contraindications. There are psychological contraindications. But for a lot of people like me who went through 30, 40 decades of life and still hadn't gotten to the core of the wounding, psychedelics have been pivotal. I like that. Like there's so much stone pack there, but even the, the, the fact that you're looking back at trauma before you were three because most people remember all oh, my daddy issues come from when my parents divorced and you're like what the exact day like none of the stuff before that affected you just the day they left and they're like i like there's so much more and then you were even saying like before in the womb trauma as well like yeah. before that like i've had experience with parents bringing their children to me that just cry all the time or have colic or something and they're like i don't know why i'm like well was your was the birth traumatic was the pregnancy traumatic ah, i was brutal well probably had an effect would would you think and then just grounding the child like i ended as i progressed into my coaching and stuff the last like clients i had for um any sort of energy work were children like the youngest i worked on was a two-year-old baby like i was the third person outside of the hospital staff to see this kid like before the parent before the family or anything like they brought it straight to me 
And I try to put that across to my clients that trauma can come from everywhere and from all life as you go through. And then the other thing I really liked was the fact that you you mentioned the cultural understanding in your therapist. Like even over in this country, there's Protestant and Catholic for an easy example. If you have a real staunch Protestant therapist and you're a real staunch Catholic person, they haven't had the same upbringing or life or anything. So you might look on the surface the same, but if they haven't had it, the fact that you have experienced more life than most is going to make you an amazing therapist, an amazing person to be around and work with. Um, so one of my, whenever you were talking about the MDMA and everything, my experience with it, I've never personally taken anything. I've never actually drank or smoked or taken any drugs in my life. Like, really? uh, yeah, I don't know how I've got this far <laughs> as it, but I spent a lot of time around people that took ecstasy, MDMA, like LSD, everything. Do you think because most people's experience is their mate being a mess with like hallucinogens or whatever, that that's why it takes them so, it's so difficult for people to realize, well, this can be used and had been used, like wasn't ecstasy a fat loss tablet at the start or something like that? Like, No, I mean, it does cause appetite suppression, but it was actually studied in psychotherapy, MDMA was. So there are literal papers on how MDMA was used in couples therapy and individual therapy. And yeah, I do think that there's a lot of stigma still around psychedelics that people, you know, from my generation growing up in America, it was the war on drugs, you know, (laughs) this is your brain on drugs. And it was all bad, bad, bad. So I remember the first time kind of feeling great fear at experimenting with psychedelics um, because of the media portrayal of it. So mm-hmm. I do feel like, yes, we're, we're in the midst of what we call the third wave of the, the psychedelic revolution. And now that we have so much more re- research happening, um, people are learning about the, the therapeutic benefits. And they're also learning that the drug war and all of those uh, drug propaganda was, was actually not based in clinical evidence, you know, saying that it was going to fry your brain or it was going to cause flashbacks. Now, it is true that some people who have a tendency towards psychosis, um, mania, schizophrenia, there are certain psychedelics that could, you know, lead to um, a a negative backlash. But by and large, LSD is an incredibly safe psychedelic with thousands of, of papers and so many um, case histories of use, but yeah, we do have, we have a lot of education to get through um, as we are introducing psychedelics into the therapeutic space. This was great to have people like yourself, like so prominent in the world that you're able to talk very logically and clear and evidence-based about it. Like you said, people will think it's like a happy thing to do or whatever. So uh, that never helps. Um, So Whenever you were talking there, you're you're saying about the daddy issues and stuff. I know I've worked with a lot of people that find it real difficult to get into loving relationships. And you talked about a couple, like one, you're not worthy, or two, you don't know what to do with once it's given to you. That's all this love. Um. So say if I was someone like that, how how would you suggest I start to reprogram that self worth and willingness to be like I know from a personal experience, I know after having a, a terrible relationship, 
when I would be talking to anyone outside, if a female was talking to me, I'd be coming up with ways of how would I end this? You're like, that's not a good, that is not a good position to be in. This person's <laughs> interesting and you're thinking, how would I get out of this safely? Uh, yeah. So thankfully that's changed. Um, I just hide away now and don't go outside. <laughs> um, but if I, if, if I'm lying to myself and saying, I don't really want a partner, but real deep down, I actually do. How do I start that healing of like becoming open to the experience? Well, it all starts with that awareness of understanding how you were programmed and how you were wounded. In um, our book, Manifesting Love, we outline a process for doing a relationship inventory. And that includes your, your family relationships because we're not born rejecting love. <laughs> yeah. It is true if you had a traumatic pregnancy, a baby could have some challenges. But by and large, we come from an experience of oneness. We're in our mother's womb, floating around in this warm amniotic fluid. We've got a steady heartbeat. We've probably got mommy's voice and maybe even daddy. So as long as there's no stress or trauma, we are born naturally expecting and accepting love. Hugs, cuddles, kisses. We don't come out thinking, what do I have to do to earn love? That is something we get programmed. Mm -hmm. We don't come into the world thinking, oh no, they're, they're not going to love me for these rolls of fat. Like, no, you're, you're, you're thought to be cute because you got these rolls of fat. We yeah. get programmed and all of that, that programming and wounding is what we have to uncover. And so when someone says to me, yeah, you know, I don't really need to have a relationship. I mean, it's overrated. overrated. It may be true. Maybe your soul is, is in this life to do other things, but I always invite people to unravel where did your programming and your beliefs get set about your worthiness of love, about what you can expect or deserve in relationships. And, you know, that took a lot of unraveling for me. Uh, I, in, in our books, we lead people through a meditative process so that you can bypass the ego and dip into the subconscious mind bring forth these parts of yourself, your inner child, maybe you're even your inner teenager, or it could be you at 20 that got wounded and took on some beliefs that are preventing you from, from having a healthy and happy relationship or from loving yourself. So we do a whole host of things, but the awareness phase always begins with taking an inventory and looking at where your beliefs and programming came from, because then you can start to question them and, and start to ask, well, is this absolutely true? And if there is a part of you, a protective part that's like, no, 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 we just need to keep people shut out. We can start to dialogue through meditation, through breath work, through journaling, and yes, through psychedelics, we can dialogue with some of these parts so that we can bring them up to speed of what is true today. It may have been that for a woman, all the men that were in her life early on were unsafe. If her father didn't protect her or believe her because some uncle or grandparent abused her or it, it kept happening, it may be that she has a programmed belief that men are not safe. Mm -hmm. And it, it might be completely valid. And when she gets to the point of adulthood where she doesn't rely on other people to protect her, that she can start to be the, the competent adult, it may be time to change those beliefs. And so that's, 
that's a little bit of the process that we go through. I like that if you do that process, then you're giving yourself choices rather than just living off your past. Like the way you put it there, which, which was like, you could have full justification for men are terrible or women are terrible or relationships are terrible because that's your experience, but it doesn't have to be your experience if you're willing to question it and asking yourself, is this true? It may have been true before, but is it true now? Um, is a question I would get a lot of people to ask about anything, whether it's business, whether it's life, relationships uh, in general. Uh, so who is it that you're working with now at the minute? Like what is the main, your main client base or? Cause there's so much that you do that I'm like, how do yeah. I get to that bit? <laughs> yeah, well, I actually have two companies. And so I work with two different client bases. One on this self-love and healing journey, I run a company called Innate Vitality, and I'm the founder of the Real Self-Love Movement. The Real Self-Love Movement is a not-for-profit, so I host a monthly guided session, guided meditations. I publish a ton of content totally for free and support people as they're healing from trauma. I, with Innate Vitality, we host events and workshops around the world. We create content, documentary films, all of that sort of thing, educating people on resilience, self-love, psychedelics, and whatnot. On the other side, I also have worked in the media for 22 years. I run a boutique publishing agency and a media production company. So we publish books and we help authors and speakers. So they could be healers, they could be shaman, they could be uh, doctors, therapists, coaches. We help them get their message out to the world through books, through TED Talks, through TV, and through documentary films. So I'm working with these. It's all about wellness and resilience and self-love, but it's either the professional who wants to get their message out to the world through books and, and so on, or it's the people who are on the healing journey. It's awesome that you have the two aspects because a lot of people would think, well, I have to go, go and focus on one of these. I'm really good at both, but I need to just focus on the one, but you're doing both. And the fact that you help people with speaking and getting their book out is really good because that's something that I get asked the most when I talk about my book is, how do you write a book? And I say, go on. I, I, like, I, I tell this openly all the time. Like I didn't read when I was at school. I was terrible at school. And I had a book in me and I knew it was in there. I just needed to get it out. So I went and got a guy called Ian Rowland who helps people write books. And was like, I have a book, how do I make a book? And I tell people all the time, find someone. There'll be someone that resonates with you, uh, with your message that like Ian and me got on so well already that it was easy for us. So if I'm trying to be a holistic practitioner, but I have a book and I don't know, like you sound like the type of person that would bring that book out and keep the, the like love and authenticity off the book rather than just going to a random publisher man and doing that. Exactly. Exactly. And then the other side is you are giving, like you can hear it in your voice when you talk, like you just want to help. You want to resonate with people. You want people to connect. And, and I know the listeners will know actually that you can overcome anything like you're not doing the hoorah Henry, you can do this type stuff. It's just, if you look at it, you get your awareness, you get your logical and then move through it. Um, so I just, I just love that. Um, with the, the meditation and stuff, this is something I push on. Like it's the one thing I push on meditating and journaling. I actually, I'm, I tell them all this stuff they could do. That's really good. 
and I push meditation and journal. I'm like, just do it. Yeah. Like I, I did for myself. I had learned meditation, my first ever meditation, probably the same as everyone's. I sat just going, what? This is so stupid. How long has it been? Like, because my Kung Fu master told me I had to do it. And then maybe about five years after that or, or less, I decided I would do 100 days in a row without missing a day to see what would happen. Mm. That's about 12 to 14 years ago now. And I've, I meditate three times a day and I've never missed a single day. So when I say to people, you should meditate, I'm like, I'm not just making it up. I'm like, this has been the biggest influence. So when it comes to the type of meditation that you do, can you give a brief description for people that are thinking about meditating or have heard me go on and on about it, but it just hasn't resonated yet? Yeah. Well, I offer a whole range of, of meditations in all of my free programs and on my website. So for people who say that they can't meditate, like my mind is too busy, I've got the monkey mind, I've got all these <laughs> thoughts, and then I judge myself, then I invite them to do a guided meditation. Um, so when we talk about teaching meditation, we teach different types. One of them is concentration meditation, where you're focusing, you could be focusing on a candle, you could be focusing on a mantra, and even doing a guided meditation where you're listening to someone describe things is training you in concentration, mm -hmm. as opposed to the open, you know, minded where you're just focusing on your breath or you're, you're trying to tune into the, the void of no thoughts. So I do a lot of guided meditations because they help beginners. They also help advanced meditators as well. We do breath meditations where people are counting the breath or just learning to become mindful and present and aware. I also lead a five-step meditation that's called the attunement process that helps people calm body and brain, really tune into the heart and compassion, open up the mind so that they're getting access to the subconscious and then they can have dialogues with a compassion figure, a wisdom figure, or any other archetype, their inner child, their inner teenager. And I find that that meditative process, which I've, I've actually studied while hooked up to an EEG machine to see <laughs> cool. that it actually gets you into these, these healthy brainwave states. So I teach a variety of different meditation styles and people are sure to find one or several that work for them. But like you, I, I have been meditating uh, for me, since I was in my in, at university, and it's the thing that I recommend across the board to nearly everyone. That mm. and journaling as well, because um, it is so powerful. Um, the other piece of it is I find that many people feel isolated if they have to go and meditate on their own, which is yeah. why in all of our group programs and in my monthly guided meditation, you get to do this in community where you can reflect and hear what other people are getting. And, and not feel so isolated. Um, so, yeah. I love that answer because again, it, it just shoots down any excuse. Oh, that's not for me. You're like, have you tried all of them? These are 10 ones I've just mentioned. Yeah. And then the, the community aspect as well. One of the things I used to get groups to do was just say, just text someone and say tomorrow at seven o'clock, do you want to meditate? You don't have to be in the same room. You just know that you're going to hold presence for each other. So it takes that isolation out of it and it helps it helps people who are afraid of their own mind. Like, I don't want to meditate. Why? Because what am I going to say to myself? Like, who knows? Let's find out. It could be interesting. It could be good. Yeah. Um, so it's just funny that you're doing the same. Like you're you're there's so many aspects to it. I haven't had the 
pleasure of getting hooked up to a machine to see what my brain's doing, but I'm going to somehow work that into my life. Now that's life goal created. Uh, whenever it comes to, I just want to bring it back to the self-love because I know that's what a lot of listeners um, struggle with. Whenever it comes to your, your self-love, do you have like a, a daily non-negotiables or do you have like just focus time in the day or is this something that you just want to build your awareness towards and just build throughout your just general life? Well, I'm a big believer in looking at your own energy system, you know, and this was taught to me as I learned traditional Chinese medicine and acupuncture. I find that for most people, like nine people out of 10, will find that the morning is the best time for self-care time. Mm -hmm. In my own regimen from 5 a.m. to 10 a.m., it's Andrea time. It's not social media time. Nice. My beloved even knows it's like, okay, I'm going to get up and meditate, do breath work, maybe yoga or qigong. I'm going to journal. I might do my Buddhist sadhana. If it's beautiful weather, I might go jog by the sea. Like that is my non-negotiable. Mm -hmm. I'm not giving away my energy to other people. I mean, like in social media, I'm not getting polluted by other people's thoughts and what is it other, other people up to. I'm able to hold that container, tune into my energy and to the divine, get my downloads. Sometimes I will look at my calendar for the day and I'll say, oh, okay, I'm, I'm shooting this evening. What do I want to bring? So when I go into meditation, I'll get my downloads. I do a lot of writing in the early part of the day. I'm always writing a book. I'm working on my next book now. And so if I have those hours that are dedicated non-negotiably, unless I'm catching a plane, this stuff, it, it just sticks. It's just non-negotiable. For me, I've also booked myself so that I'm only working Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. Uh, I happen to be at a point in my career where I can do that. And I don't start... In a, engaging with the outside world until two in the afternoon. So you know that you got a link to, to book this interview. Yeah. There's a very narrow time frame yeah. that I'm available to the outside world. And that mm -hmm. is so that my energy is best. If I need to work with clients one-on-one, -on -one, I need to be bringing the best energy so that I'm giving from the overflow. I'm never giving from a deficit position. Yeah. I'm always brimming and, and bubbling over. That gives me enough time for myself, enough time for my family, enough time for being out in nature. I don't work on Fridays. Friday is my wellness day. Monday is my creative day. And Saturday and Sunday are family time. We can do creative things or family things. But having that rigid container, I can be flexible, of course, if there's a major yeah. launch going on or I'm shooting a film, of course, there's flexibility. But by having this container in place, I have been able to increase my productivity by tenfold. Like in the last few years, we have published like six books and several of them I'm contributing to. Plus, you know, shooting this documentary, plus you know, dealing with my mother who transitioned and left this world in September. And, and so I, I invite people to really get that specific, to know your energy and know what you need in order to be at your fullest and best for the people that you care about, for the work that you love, but most importantly for yourself. That's awesome. You're not leaving your wellness and your life to chance. You have, you're taking Absolutely. full charge of it. Most people will do everything you just said. Most will do the exact opposite. 
sluggishly get up, look at their phone, see what's going on in the world. And then you're polluted. Your your energy, yeah. like you can look at your brainwave state. Your energy when you first wake up, you've still got a little bit of connection to that beta delta state. That is a prime moment to do your breath work or journaling or meditation, even if it's five or ten minutes. But as soon as you pick up a device, you are polluting your brainwave state yeah. and you're setting the tone for the rest of your day. And it's very hard to get that back. You can do a meditation or a qigong reset. But why? Why not just plan it <laughs> yeah. so that you're having the best energy for you and everyone you care about? Yeah, I love that. Uh, Andrea, I really appreciate your time. I could talk to you for hours. Uh, where is the best place for people to find you, to get your books, to get in touch, to see all of the stuff that you're doing and ask you questions? <laughs> yeah, visit me online, andreapennington.com. You'll see all of my free programs and how you can engage with me on a monthly basis for free in the real self-love movement. Of course, if you'd like to join one of our workshops, we have Stories with Soul, which is a life writing workshop that's based on the hero's journey that's happening in July. We do author showcases and, and media showcases to help people prepare to step on stage or do a TED talk. So visit me online, andreapennington.com. I'm also on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. I'm sharing content every week. So check me out there. Awesome. I will make sure to tag everything below as well. And that workshop's coming up soon. It's coming up in July, didn't you just say there? So yes, everyone can get on that. Um, again, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. And for everyone listening, have a super awesome day, whatever you get up to. And I will speak to you again soon.